Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast is not meant for children or for liberals, even though that's pretty much the same thing these days. But that's what we're here for. Somebody's got to keep these brats in line. Anyway, you've been warned. It's the right opinion. These days, our media's either incompetent or malevolent. They don't believe in heaven, but they acting like they haven't sent. Knowing the truth is way harder than telling it. We gotta work harder, gotta be more intelligent. Sometimes we just gotta grab a mic and start yelling shit. We're living in times when it's hard to stay relevant. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the, the elephant, elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Welcome back, everybody, to The Right Opinion right here on the therightopinion.podbean.com. More importantly, on rightopinionpod.substack.com. And pretty much all podcatchers of choice, obviously, check me out over at hominmediagroup.podbean.com and ratsaladreview.com as well. You can find me on the Twitter machine, the parlor machine, even the gram of Insta, at rightopinionpod. Be sure to follow all of that to get all of the right opinion as it slowly drips out over time because yours truly is just seemingly impossible, uh, incapable rather, of finding the time to do the show on a regular basis. But nevertheless, we have gotten to a point in the news cycle to where I can't put it off any longer. There's been a plethora of completely ridiculous, radical, random shit that has happened since I last spoke to you. So let's get in to one of my favorite topics. Uh, which is actually going to start with a plug, again, to rightopinionpod.substack.com. Go check out the article there. Uh, wrote Victimhood, I believe it's Victimhood Worldwide is the name of the article, and it is about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the sheer and utter nonsense being spewed by the left in relation to said conflict. So, here's, you know, the, the article itself is kind of a whole nother branch of patterns that we can discover within the left in their anti-Semitism that is just radical and rabid, and yet for some reason they're always focused on Trump's anti-Semitism, Marjorie Taylor Greene's anti-Semitism, Matt Gates, whatever he might be doing. It turns out that he might have, like, it went from sex trafficking to, like, maybe he smoked some, some, some medical marijuana or something along those lines. We're not really following that story all that closely because it doesn't fucking matter until he's found guilty of anything. Up until that point, he is, at least last I checked innocent until proven guilty and being that this is obviously some sort of weird political hit job the likelihood of anything actually coming out of it is not very high i just i've seen these stories before they occur on both sides of the aisles and until something happens we will report on absolutely nothing related to it because there's nothing to report because nothing's happened so back to one of my favorite topics the jews they deserve a big intro because they've, you know, suffered quite a bit. But nevertheless, the left's love of Palestine exposes all of their hypocrisies simultaneously. This is the most beautiful thing. If you're a right winger, you know, we like to pounce and we like to seize Republicans pounce, Republicans seize on Democrats doing objectively stupid shit. And that's why we're pouncing and we're seizing 
recently there was an article in the New York Times talking about, I think it was the New York Times, talking about all these attacks on on Jews here in America is, quote, a gift to the right. So we're now jumping past the pouncing and the seizing to the fact that because we obviously like to pounce and we like to seize, it is now a gift that the right that the left has given us something to pounce and or seize on. It's not just the fact that the left is wholly inept, and that's why when they do things, we pounce and seize on them. No, no. It's that the Republicans have a predilection for pouncing and seizing, and so when the left offers things for them to pounce and seize on, it's a gift. It's amazing. Like, all washing machines should come with a setting that just says, like, mainstream media spin. It's like, do you want normal spin, or do you want, like, the batshit crazy your washing machine could knock itself on its side at any given time because it's so completely out of control spin? That's where we're at. Now, I mean, spin's got a funny connotation. Obviously, all media, to a certain extent, is spin. You're getting my spin at the moment. Bill O'Reilly purported to have the no-spin zone back in his day, which was obviously not true either because it was his spin. But the the left spin not only doesn't make sense, period, if you're a normal individual, it also doesn't make sense if you're a radical, ridiculous leftist. For instance, the left, the liberals, the Democrats, the media, academia, the Hollywood elites, the blue checkmark brigade, all of these people purport to love democracy. They love it. The Republicans are always attacking it, and they are the ones defending it. They love democracy. Oh, so much do they love democracy. They are diddling themselves at night to the thought of democracy. Yet here they are, supporting the Palestinian Liberation Organization that is a regime that has not had a a democratic election in 15 years. As a matter of fact, One of the root causes of this most recent conflict was the fact that the current PLO regime, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, that that organization is in charge right now of this fictional country called Palestine. Um, But they were going to have an election because they thought that they were going to lose to Hamas because over there they don't have, you know, one political party that says, hey, maybe let's leave the Jews alone, and the other political party is like, kill all the Jews. No, 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 no. They have two political parties, sometimes three, that it's like, kill the Jews, kill more of the Jews, and why haven't we killed all of the Jews yet? Those are the options that they're pretty much dealing with over there. That said, the Palestinian people, the last time they had a democratic election, elected a terrorist organization and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So this whole this this whole country, quote-unquote, because Palestine's not really a country, but this whole region is emblematic of the antithesis of democracy. And yet here is the left pounding their chest and so proudly supporting these Palestinians that basically do all but pull down their trousers and take a dump on democracy every time they open their mouths. They... The left, the liberals, the media, the Democrats, the Hollywood elites, the blue checkmark brigade, academia, they love the alphabet people. Yes, the LGBTQAAIP2 plus movement. They fucking love those people. As a matter of fact, if you're if you're a straight man and you don't want to suck a trans woman's dick, they think you're a monster. That's how much they love the LBGTGBTQAAIP2 movement, whatever it is that fucking letter salad that they have going on over there. They love these people. They freak out anytime anything could even be remotely construed as an attack against said people. And yet, 
Here they are supporting a regime that would throw these people off of roofs for their own entertainment. So, uh, I, they love democracy. They love the PLO. They love the LGBT community. They love Palestine. Those things can't coexist, folks. Only in the world of somebody who suffers from the mental disorder known as liberalism could these things square in any way, shape, or form. Moving on. They, the left, the liberals, the media types, the academics, the Hollywood elites, the blue checkmark brigade, they are the ones, when you're riding around in your car, with this cutesy coexist bumper sticker. You guys have all seen it. It makes me a little nauseous every time I see it because I know that I'm driving behind an asshole. But um, they are, they're the ones that have these stickers, these coexist stickers. And they show, you know, like a Star of David and a Crescent Moon and a star and a, and a cross to show that all these different religions can coexist with one another. Except for the fact that they're supporting a regime that has zero interest in coexisting with the Jews. They've been offered coexistence multiple times, yet they continue to refuse it every single time. The Jews are some supposed evil, empirical, apartheid state that is the only one of the parties involved here that has given up land and made attempts to reach peace and has offered the Palestinians certain land, certain rights, certain ability to govern themselves. They just want to be left alone. Sounds sort of like conservatives here in the United States, does it not? There's a parallel there as well, which is why the left loves Palestine, because they don't want the left or the right or Israel to be left alone. No, no. They have to dictate every single thing about their lives to them, as is the case, obviously, with the Israelis, because, you know, they literally just are trying to go about their lives, and then they get 4,500 missiles sent at them from this this supposed country, this this neighboring regime, and they're just supposed to sit back and take it. There's no other country in the world that would be expected to, to just sit back and take it, but we, not we, the left, the liberals, the mainstream media, the Democrats, the Hollywood elites, and the blue checkmark brigade, they think that the Jews should just sit back and take this. It's an interesting approach. I mean, it's not going to probably work out long term for, for the Jews over in Israel because they'll be rocketed out of existence if they stop returning fire or stop implementing the Iron Dome or they don't replenish the Iron Dome. But make no mistake about it, the Israelis are not the ones starting these conflicts. And they're certainly not this oppressive empirical regime because if they were, no such Palestine, PLO, Hamas, anything along those lines would even exist. We are talking about James Ellsworth versus Brock Lesnar here, okay? The Israelis could, if they wanted to, wipe most of the Arab world completely off the map tomorrow. They don't because they just want to be left alone. It's really not all that crazy. Moving on from there, they, the left, the media, the liberals, the academias, uh, the academics, the Hollywood elites, the blue checkmark brigade, they claim to stand up for persecuted minorities. Except fuck those Jews, though. I mean, literally, they, they will stand up for black people, brown people, Asian people, gay people, women, trans people, autistic people, people with disabilities, people with the, you know, what fucking restless leg syndrome. They will stick up for just about anybody except for the Jews. And they also, it, it would be one thing if the, 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 the anti-Semitism problem only existed outside of the U.S. border. 
It doesn't. They talk about all this white supremacy and all this nonsense and police killing blacks and all these hate crimes. Most of the hate crimes in this country are targeting Jews. It was amazing that they even recognized the Tree of Life synagogue when that got shot up because you know that that couldn't have helped the left's narrative because that makes people feel bad for the Jews, which is what these people, the media, the left, the blah, 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 that's what these people spend every minute of their day trying to undo is any sympathy for the Jews because they they want them to not exist. And if you feel bad for them, you might try to stop these people from wiping them off the face of the earth. There was a guy who tried this once, and weirdly enough, they compared him to our last president, who was the most Jewish-friendly president ever, and certainly the most Israel-friendly. Moving on from there, last, uh, last little bit here for the left's hypocrisy is they, the left, the liberals, the media, the Democratic Party, the academics, and the Hollywood elites, and of course the blue checkmark brigade on Twitter, they claim to hate terrorists, like the fucktards with the flagsticks that stormed our capital. But they openly support groups like Antifa, groups like Black Lives Matter, and essentially at now at this point are welcoming Hamas, which is a legitimate, self-admitted terrorist organization. Their own charter makes no bones about what they plan on doing, which is wiping Israel off of the map permanently. That is that is a terrorist organization, ladies and gentlemen. And nevertheless, you know, the squad and all the, the Democrats up on, up on Capitol Hill— cannot get enough of these people. This is there's is no moral equivalence between what is going on with Israel and what is going on with the Palestinians or Hamas or the PLO, whatever you want to frame it as. There's no moral equivalence whatsoever. First and foremost, Israel, like the Jews had been living in the land now known as Israel since 1600 years before Islam ever even existed. Let me repeat that one for you. The Jews you know, the guys with the funny hats, they have lived in Israel for 1,600 years before Islam ever existed. You don't know that, probably, because they obviously don't tell you that, because they want you to think that there's an equivalence here. And yes, I know, you could be saying to yourself, but Harrison, you know, the Native Americans were here before us, too. There were wars fought and lost, and there are consequences. Those similar wars have been fought in the Middle East in relation to Israel. After Israel was declared a, a nation state, basically, after World War II, it was immediately bombed and conquered, and then immediately taken back within a, basically about a decade. There was also another attempt for the whole Middle East, basically, to team up on Israel, and Israel managed to thwart that attack before it ever really got off the ground. If the Palestinians want this land so bad... Look, I'm not, I'm not calling for war. I like peace. I'm a big fan of it. I particularly don't want to see any uh, you know, damage done to our, our supremely important ally of Israel. But if you want it, you got to go get it the old-fashioned way, right? Like, you're, you're dealing with Israel. They're a nuclear power. They've got the Iron Dome. They've got military equipment from some of the most advanced countries in the world, including themselves. They have a, a vast amount of technological advancements in Israel, probably some of which they sell to us. Not to mention Mossad, which is the most, which is probably the world's premier intelligence organization as far as efficacy. They, like I said, are Brock Lesnar. Palestine is James Ellsworth. For those of you who don't know James Ellsworth, imagine like one of those assholes that was carrying the tiki torch in Charlottesville, and then shrink him down to about seventy percent the size. That's basically James Ellsworth. He was a you know professional wrestler. He's like a little goober. He was brought on the WWE television as basically a joke. And uh, and he managed to to milk it for a fair amount of time 
and made himself a decent amount of money. This pandemic has probably thrown a bit of a monkey wrench into that because I'm sure all the momentum that he had is, is now died off. But nevertheless, James Ellsworth is a tiny, scrawny, useless man, and Brock Lesnar is the peak of physical existence, okay? <laughs> that is pretty much where we're at here, is that the the media, the left, the blah, 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 all the leftists out there, all the liberals, the people suffering from the mental disorder known as liberalism, they seem to be angry at Israel in all of this because they're just better at war. Like, like Hamas starts wars they basically know they cannot win for the purpose of having Israel retaliate so that they could point at Israel and go, look at how monstrous they are, which is just not the case, really. Again, no country in the world would be expected to deal with the level of, uh, of aggression from the outside that Israel is expected to deal with on a regular basis. If Canada dropped 4,500 bombs into into America yesterday, by today, there would be no Canada. But yet we sit there and we allow Hamas or the PLO or Fatah or whatever organization is, is pulling the reins over in Palestine, air quotes, at the moment. These people are um, allowed to basically do whatever they want, and if the Jews ever retaliate, they're the bad guys. It's like a call on... on you know, anybody who still watches the NFL, you always know that the guy who reacts to the first punch is the one who gets the flag thrown on him. That's basically where we're at in the Middle East is that Palestine continues to initiate conflicts. Israel retaliates. The ref doesn't see the first one, sees the second one, throws the flag on Israel. That's basically where we're at, except for the ref is the left. It's the left ref. It's the leftery, if you will. So that's it. That's what I got from the Middle East for right now. All of this is just very silly. But not nearly as silly as all this hullabaloo surrounding this lab leak that has been going on, uh, that, that has been rumored for quite a while related to the coronavirus. I have two articles in the show notes for you this week. One of them, I know, you don't faint, folks. If you're driving, pull over. One of them is from the Washington Post. I know. I put it in here just to really flex all of the spin and to show you how ridiculous the left is, is that even when they're basically caught, and no one knows for sure that this was leaked from a lab, but Occam's razor pretty much told us from the get-go that this leaked from the lab. Let's look at some of the evidence that might suggest, for instance, that this was more likely to come from the lab in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, than it was to naturally occur in the world. For instance, the virus started in Wuhan, which is where China has the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Virology, for those of you who don't know, is the study of viruses. This was a novel bat-centric coronavirus, and sure enough, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was studying coronaviruses that emanate from bats. And they told us that this was the result of a wet market, and somebody ate a bat, but it turns out that when they looked at the wet market, the particular breed of bat that would have started this particular disease didn't live anywhere around there, wasn't caught anywhere around there, was not found anywhere at the wet markets. Now, of course, they gave us that. They, the Chinese and the World Health Organization, kind of threw that out there as the original cause of this, and then when we here in America said, well, that seems weird. Why the fuck are they eating bats? Then we were called racist, of course, for, for not uh, appreciating other people's cultures. Like, I don't give a fuck what your culture is. If you're eating bats, it's a fucked up culture, okay? It's the same thing as, like, not all cultures are created equally. Like, for instance, see most of the Middle East. Those cultures are not created equally to us. First and foremost, those societies live like it's the 13 fucking hundreds. 
Second of all, they're still incredibly oppressive to women and gays and all of the things that I listed in the first segment there. All cultures are not created equal. Some cultures are inevitably greater than others. And a culture that's eating fucking bats is either so desperate that that's what they're eating or so deranged that they don't seem to think that there's anything weird about that given that there's other food sources available that are not only more nutritious but less likely to spread disease. And they're also less gross looking. Who the fuck wants to eat a bat? It's gross. People are fucking gross. Not the by these people... I mean the Chinese. Let's face it. (laughs) There's just, there's no way around it. I just mean the Chinese. Um, The people that currently live there, Chinese Americans, I'm sure you're fine as long as you're not eating bats here. We cool. So, the Washington Post writes this article basically admitting that there is now some credibility to the, quote, vexing lab leak theory. And what's so vexing about it? Well, it's vexing because logical people put together all those pieces of evidence that I presented just a minute ago and said, yeah, I'm sorry, Occam's razor tells me it's far more likely that this virus emanated from the lab in the town where the virus originated that happens to study viruses, particularly the type of virus that this is. I mean, that just seems logical. Now, there's no actual proof of that yet. There's been some other evidence that's leaked out For instance, the story from the New York Post, or maybe it was the Wall Street Journal. It's one of the not terrible New York papers, so not the New York Times. There was a report that showed that the lab had been shut down for a couple of weeks and that some of the people that worked in this lab were being treated in emergency rooms in hospitals for COVID-19 adjacent, you know, symptoms, basically, is that it seems like these people got this virus and this virus spread as a result of this lab leak that got some of their people sick in November of 2019. So while we were all sitting here kicking and screaming and bitching and moaning about the election to come and the impeachment that was being uh, started or at least rumored at that particular moment in time, they let a virus loose on the world, shut down travel within the country to and from Wuhan, but not outside of the country, and to and from Wuhan for that matter. So they allowed this virus to escape their borders while trying to maintain it as best they could within their borders without saying anything to anybody else. They then told the World Health Organization it was a bat in a wet market. The World Health Organization said, we kind of want to take a look at that lab. And they said, no, it's nothing to do with the lab. And the World Health Organization said, oh, well, I mean, it must not have anything to do with the lab. I mean, China would never lie to us, obviously. So that brings me to this article from Aaron Blake. I'm going to read most of this, I think. So bear with me here. It reads, and I quote, It has been said many times that Donald Trump's presidency was a stress test for democracy, and that's certainly true. It's a reality that very much persists to this date. But it is also a stress test for those charged with covering it. What do you do when someone bulldozes so many political norms and unwritten rules of political discourse? How do you cover unfounded and specious allegations lodged not from some random internet commenter, but from the most powerful man in the world. You could fact check, but do you in the process inadvertently lend them credence? Do you call the claims, quote, baseless or, quote, conspiracy theories? Do you call them, quote, lies? Even if you can't 100% disprove them, or even if you don't know for sure that the person promoting them actually knows better? It has become evident that some corners of the mainstream media overcorrected when it came to one particular theory from Trump and his allies, that the coronavirus emanated from a laboratory in Wuhan, China, rather than naturally. 
end quote. So I'm going to get back to this in a second here. But notice where it starts. We're not talking about Trump. We're not talking about China. We're talking about the media with their woe is me. I was so blinded by my own bias, I couldn't conceivably allow the possibility that Donald Trump might have been right about something, even though, despite the fact that he has a tenuous relationship with the truth, he still ended up being right far more often than the mainstream media did about most of the major issues, and has certainly been more correct on policy than any Democrat has possibly ever been. So it gets me back into the article here. The Washington Post continues. This is, once again, Aaron Blake. And I quote, it's also true that many criticisms of the coverage are overwrought and that Trump's and his allies' claims invited and deserved skepticism. Quick pause again. Yeah, all people's claims deserve some sort of skepticism. We shouldn't take anyone at face value. That includes Biden. That includes Harris. That includes the World Health Organization. That includes the CDC. And yes, even your precious Lord Fauci. All of these people's claims invite and deserve skepticism. The problem is, is that you had an overwrought, to use your word, amount of skepticism when it came to anything that came out of Donald Trump's mouth. Not because he has a history of lying. Again, I, I've admitted multiple times that he has a tenuous relationship with the truth, most of which has to do with hyperbole rather than manufacturing facts, as the media will tell you. They legitimately manufacture facts, and when they can't manufacture them, they'll just put an anonymous source on it and run it anyway. They have an exorbitant amount of skepticism for everything Trump and his allies says, but no skepticism for China, Fauci, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and their peers, and the media, all of which have been caught red-fucking-handed lying every step of the way. And yes, there might be some sort of China pun in there with the red-handedness. Continuing with the article, evidence has in increasingly pointed to the plausibility of the lab leak theory, which most scientists and the media originally downplayed or in some cases dismissed. The latest example is a Wall Street Journal report, here you go, that cites U.S. intelligence that three workers from the Wuhan Institute of Virology became so ill in November of 2019, shortly before the virus was unleashed, not just on Wuhan, but eventually the world, that they required hospital care. This is an unverified intelligence, but leading infectious disease expert Anthony S. Fauci, who downplayed the lab leak theory in the past, was asked recently whether he was confident about that, and he said, quote, no, actually, end quote. He urged further investigation, which is weird because we were told that this was a bizarre debunked conspiracy theory and that there was no basis for it. And now Lord Fauci says, oh, well, maybe we should probably look into this. Of course, it's about, you know, a year too late for it to and for it to really have any deep ramifications. Not to mention, look, guys, we all know what happened here is that this, this, this virus was largely exaggerated for the purposes of ruining the economy and ruining Donald Trump's reelection chances. You doubt me? I mean, like, look at what's happening now. They took the most logical explanation for something happening, completely ignored it, claimed they debunked it, completely dismissed it thereafter, and shut anybody off of social media who dare speak of it. And now a year later, here they are going, oh, well, you know, maybe that does kind of make sense. We should probably have looked into that a little better, which is weird because Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo put together an investigation to look into the origins of the virus in relation to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and guess who just shut that investigation down not that long ago? 
if you said President useless sack of fucking potatoes, you might be paying attention. Dr. Fauci suddenly not only is curious about this, but he seems to have also possibly perjured himself recently when Rand Paul was questioning him not only about the masks and whether or not it was theater for him to wear one, and then, of course, four weeks later, openly admitted on air on a news network that, yeah, basically the masks, once you've been vaccinated, are theater, because he didn't say that he needed to wear one. He just said he felt uncomfortable with people seeing him wearing one, which is the definition of theater. Then... Fauci was asked about whether or not the NIH, which is his National Institute of Health, has, has he was running it for a period of time, and, and I believe currently is, um, he was asked about whether or not any funds were sent from that organization to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for studies of gain-of-function research of viruses. Now, gain-of-function research is basically taking a virus that already exists or could potentially exist in nature, getting it to the point to where it could cross species and have a maximum R not basically be as contagious and as potentially lethal as possible. That's what they're doing when they're looking for gain-of-function research. Now, the claim is, is that we do this type of research so that we could figure out how to stop these viruses from, you know, turning into a COVID-19 pandemic if and when they do occur naturally. But I think we all can pretty much fairly assume that the Chinese are probably using it for the worst possible motives, which is for potential biological weapons somewhere down the line, if this wasn't what this was to begin with. Again, the Chinese were super sketchy about all this. They spent months hiding it. They stopped the travel within China to and from Wuhan, but they allowed it to continue throughout the rest of the world. They just lied to the World Health Organization, who either were too dumb to question China or too loyal to China to question China. And the World Health Organization still was telling people not to ban travel until late February into March. Can you imagine if Donald Trump hadn't stopped the travel like at the beginning of March and and they were continuing to tell people to just go willy-nilly fly all around the world for another couple of months, how much worse this would have been? It probably would have gotten to the close to the 2.2 million number that the original uh, IMHE model was was suggesting. Fortunately, we're nowhere near that number, and we have Donald Trump to thank for that. The vaccine, his his measures as far as trying to mitigate the virus, and look, you and I actually share a little bit of this as well, is because we've all kind of we don't like it, but we've all done our part to a certain extent with these mitigation efforts, with the distancing, with the masking, with the hygiene, with just general awareness of this virus. We've now all done a little bit to help slow the spread, quite literally. I know that just sounds like propaganda nonsense at this point, but that's definitely what happened. The masks might not be incredibly effective. The social distancing might not be incredibly necessary, and the hygiene should have always been a thing, but we know that wasn't always the case. So now people are hyper-aware of the distance, of the masks, of their hygiene, and as a result, you know, on the other side of this, hopefully a lot of this doesn't go away. I mean, the masks, yes. The social distance, yes. But hopefully people continue to be hygienic and take better care of themselves. And then hopefully the next pandemic that comes, we won't have a bunch of fat, old, out-of-shape people that are just sitting here waiting for something to kill them, like Corona like COVID-19 or whatever the fuck it is. All right, I strayed from this article a little bit. Let me get back in here, and I quote, The Washington Post editorial board, among among others, have in recent weeks upped the demands for a fuller accounting of just how the virus began. In an instructive piece last week, former New York Times health reporter Donald G. McNeil Jr., who covered the virus extensively, wrote about his early skepticism of the lab leak theory and how he has warmed to it. Here are some relevant points from his post on Medium. 
and it goes on to, to give uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. McNeil, I would presume, uh, he's, or I guess he's not a doctor, or maybe he is, he's a health reporter, Donald G. McNeil Jr. He goes on to say that we may never know, but the argument that it could have leaked out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology or a sister lab in Wuhan has become considerably stronger than it was a year ago when the screaming was so loud it drowned out serious discussion. Okay, pause. Who's screaming? What's screaming? Donald Trump screaming? Is that what we're talking about? That's just how he talks, motherfucker. Ain't you never seen none of his movies? Deep Blue Sea, they ate him. A fucking shark ate him. All right, sorry, couldn't help myself. But uh, no, Donald Trump was not yelling about this. He might have used some language you didn't like, but that's pretty much all language from what I could tell from the commentary of the left, the leftists, the liberals, the mainstream media, the academics, the blue check marks, the Hollywood elites, blah, 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 blah. They don't like any language because if it's not language that they can manipulate for you to think the way that they want you to think, well, then it's bad, obviously. Welcome to Oceana. But then from there... Uh, he continues on another point that he made, separate point here. It is separated out by some some ellipses here. But he says, I had been skeptical of the lab leak theory because animal spillover is such an obvious answer. Genetics has proven that almost every disease mankind has faced jumped from animals, bubonic plague from rodents, measles from cows, whooping cough maybe from dogs, and so on. Also, the leak idea was just too conveniently conspiratorial. Quick pause again. If it's... Too conveniently conspiratorial. What is too fucking conveniently conspiratorial? It's a fucking virus lab in the middle of where the goddamn city that this virus broke out is. They study viruses there. They study bat coronaviruses there. A fucking bat coronavirus broke out in that fucking city. And it's too conveniently conspiratorial to, to think, hmm, maybe it came from the fucking virus lab down the street. No, it's, it's simply because, and again, that's the whole point of this article, is not to say that the lab leak theory is more viable, which it is, and that should be the fucking story. It's, an, uh, it's a, oh, well, I mean, what were we supposed to do? The, ma- the bad orange man told us we couldn't believe him ever under any circumstances. And God forbid he was actually right. We certainly couldn't report on that because that would make him look good, and that might help his chances of getting reelected. It's all a big fucking spin job of, well... All right, so the lab leak's legit, but, like, how could we have known, bruh? I don't know. Maybe put down the CNN branded bath salts for a fucking second and open your eyes there, Slick. I, I mean, this was obvious from the jump. It was obvious. And the, and you, that's the most painful part about it is. It's like, look, if there's, like, there's a theory out there that makes sense, but there's, like, a legitimate reason why maybe people aren't looking down that road. Okay, like, all right, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. But here is... The biggest story of our lifetime. Really, the biggest story of our lifetime. And you would think that the journalists would want to get this one right. And that if it was a lab leak from Wuhan, oh my God, what a fucking story that would be. That would make, that would single-handedly make a journalist's career if they were able to break that story. And not only were they not interested in doing that, because it could have, again, helped the bad orange man, but they were willing to just pretend like it wasn't even an option. You were willing to overlook the most obvious fucking answer to the greatest question of a hundred years. Like, how did this pandemic start? And none of them were even remotely interested in finding the facts. There was, I mean, there was only two options. Even now, today, they're only telling you there's two options. A, lab leak. B, nature. If there was a thousand options, now I could see why we might not look down all of those paths. But there were two paths. Does it not merit at least taking a peek down one of them? 
No, it's definitely got to, guys, we definitely go right. Well, what about left? Like, maybe left's faster. Nah, nah, don't even worry about left. Well, shouldn't we at least, like, take a look? Like, maybe maybe we should, like, put some thought into this? Like, take a map out? I, I, Google this shit? Like, no? Apparently not. Then we get down to the last part here. It says, but the Occam's razor argument, what's the likeliest explanation, animal or lab, keeps shifting in the direction of the latter. Now, look, I don't, I don't know George Donald McNeil here or whatever his name is. He was a former New York Times writer, so I can assume he also has a similar bias to Aaron Blake here at the Washington Post. But it was always on that side. It's not shifting towards the latter. It was always there, and you morons are just finally fucking waking up to it because it's obvious. The only question to any sane person is did this leak occur accidentally? Or did it occur on purpose? Any other option, like this occurred in nature, or it was the wet markets, or, you know, somebody stuck a bat in a microwave to reheat it for lunch, and that activated some... None of this is even fucking likely, okay? It's not even possible in some cases, but it's definitely not likely. It's the goddamn lab. Now, again, I don't know that definitively, but Occam's razor makes it pretty apparent. On top of the fact that you know, there's been plenty of people that have out have ruled out the, the 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 idea that this occurred in nature, is that a virus like this would have it would have taken thousands, if not millions, of years for a virus like this to not only develop in bats, but for it to be able to jump to humans. And and yet we're just supposed to believe that this is just the thing; it just happened. Oh yeah, this happens all the time, guys. I mean, yeah, the guy gave a few examples: bubonic plague, and even the even two of the three examples he said measles probably from cows. Whooping cough, maybe from dogs. So we know the bubonic plague came from rats. Do we even know that for sure? Or do we just know that they were the easiest vector for spreading it? Either way, we don't even know that these things are true. These diseases are so old and occurred so long ago that maybe today's science might have changed things drastically as far as how they came upon us. But here we are today just sitting there and pretending like the most obvious answer isn't the most obvious answer. But never mind, you know, never mind anything I just said, guys. Definitely trust the science. Always trust the science. So I just want to hit one more last uh, paragraph here from this article. I'm skipping down a couple ones, but here it says, Media reports often refer to the idea that the virus leaked from a lab as, quote, debunked. So not only was it not true, but they apparently looked into it and debunked it. Of course, that's not true because they didn't. <laughs> but even even PolitiFact this week had to uh, basically archive one of their corrections because it, it turns out that it wasn't so correct after all, and that it wasn't a fact at all. It's polit opinion. So then from there, back into the article here, back in this paragraph, rather, others describe such theories as conspiracies or conspiracy theories. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, was criticized in February 2022 for playing up the possibility of a lab leak, with reports citing the scientists who disbelieved or dismissed the theory. A CNN story cited a poll showing 30% of Americans believed a theory about a lab leak that was, quote, almost certainly not true. A banana is a banana over at CNN, and an apple is an apple, and a perfectly logical theory, which has not been debunked by any serious person, because there's no serious evidence to do any serious debunking, was declared almost certainly not true by CNN. We just put that in the win column for the rest of us who don't fucking waste our time watching CNN. Last sentence, others, including from the Washington Post, so our boy Aaron Blake here throwing his own colleagues under the bus, described the theories as, quote, 
unsubstantiated. Begging the question, did they make an attempt to substantiate? Did they? Did they even try to substantiate? At least PolitiFact attempted to pretend that they debunked something, and then it turns out that that wasn't such a debunking after all. But after all of these people were criticized, and like I said before, multiple people with very large platforms were thrown off of social media for even daring to express the opinion that it seems likely that this virus emanated from the virus lab in the middle of the town where the virus was first discovered and first started spreading. Again, it seems to me like that's that's a fairly obvious path to at least start looking down. No one was interested in looking down that path because any evidence that they found was only evidence that Donald Trump was right and that he actually knew and that they, the media, were so blinded by their TDS that they were unwilling to accept that fact. And now almost a year later, they're just barely sort of coming around to it, but only after they write articles like this where they have to explain, well, guys, you can't blame us. Who could have possibly believed the bad orange man? It's not like he had all of the intelligence available to him. But, you know, we're, we're the Washington Post, guys. I mean, our anonymous sources told us that this is probably bunk, so it's been debunked, y'all. Haven't you heard? So that's it. There's more to this article. It's stupid. I got another article I want to read to you a little bit later on in the show, and uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But I just discovered this podcast recently. Um, I'm sort of ashamed that I spent the 30 minutes listening to it, but I was on uh, Apple Podcasts, which is generally where I get my podcasts, and you can get this podcast there, of course, by just searching for the right opinion. It'll be the black and white and red all over thumbnail like the New York Times used to be. So um, I'm flipping through, and it's you know recommending podcasts for me. And as you can imagine, I listen to a lot of political podcasts, and Apple's obviously not pushing a lot of right-wing political podcasts, so I get a lot of stupid shit like, hey, you should check out Hillary Clinton's new podcast. And I'm like, hey, Apple, go fuck yourself. This week, I stumbled upon this podcast. It is the Financial Feminist Podcast. Now, many of you know I work in finance to a certain extent, so I do want to talk about this a little bit, and then we'll talk about aliens and white guilt, and we will get on out of here. But the fine—I know, it's quite an array of topics this week. Jews, aliens, financial feminism, white guilt. It's, a, it's quite an array on the, on the right opinion this week. So the financial feminist, this uh, this chick first and foremost is 24 years old and thinks that she has anything to share with the rest of us, which is sort of mind boggling unto itself. And she apparently just discovered podcasts because she opens the show by saying, oh, I'm so excited to come to you with this new long form medium. No, this long form medium has been around for like a dozen years. You were just 12 when they started. So you have no fucking idea. So that gives you an idea of what we're dealing with here. But the financial feminist what exactly is financial feminism, one may ask. Well, she believes that she's going to talk about money, which is something that is uh, considered taboo because of the patriarchy, and basically she's going to fight for women in all the press communities and for a better financial outcome for them. I could do that too in two words, work harder. Nevertheless, here we are. Um, so a couple points that she said, uh, she talks about talking about money, the idea of like not talking about money and because people think it's taboo, you know, you go to work, you don't really talk about what you make because I don't know, the people next to you do similar jobs and might be offended to find out that you're making a lot more than them or vice versa for that matter. I actually agree with her to that extent. I think people should have those conversations. If me and my coworker are doing the same amount of work, we're doing it equally well, we both deserve equal pay, but that maybe, you know, I've only been there. Uh, two years they've been there five or maybe the other way around or whatever the case may be. Maybe there's 
other reasons, and those can be rationalized amongst two sane people that understand that they provide a service in exchange for income. Uh, but, you know, we can't have rational conversations like that anymore. Fuck, we don't even live in a world where people think you have to, you know, provide a service in exchange for income. Just existing is apparently enough for some of these lunatics. But she talks about how talking about money is considered taboo because of the patriarchy. This is where she loses me, of course, because it's sort of weird because, you know, if it was taboo to talk about money, well, I'm sorry to tell this 24-year-old galaxy brain, but it was taboo to talk about money before women were really a significant part of the workforce, meaning that men were the only ones really earning any money, and it would seem very odd that the patriarchy would, you know, slap down upon itself and prevent them from prospering by stopping each other from talking about money giving it a taboo conversational status. So, yeah, it has nothing to do with the patriarchy, sweetheart. Maybe open a fucking history book. From there, she goes on to her next point, saying, and I quote, the very act of getting your financial shit together is feminist, end quote. Wow, um, weird, because the entire financial system was built by the patriarchy, apparently. So isn't getting your financial shit together just learning to play by the patriarchal rules, why not overhaul finance entirely in a feminist way? If the system is, of course, the result of patriarchy and you're just playing your part, are you simply not conforming to the patriarchy? Not to mention getting your financial shit together is your responsibility as a human being, particularly if you're a parent of either gender. And yes, I said either because there's only fucking two. And then from there, she goes on to talk about the financial industry is predatory against marginalized communities. So they should obviously dive headfirst and participate in it fully. Again, I understand. Systems exist. You can't really avoid them. You want to revamp them. But you can't sit there and talk about how evil the system is while then trying to participate in it. Doesn't seem like that adds up all that well. Mind you, the financial industry is predatory against all communities. It is an industry hell-bent on basically collecting as much money as humanly possible into the hands of very few people that are clients of the financial industry. And if you're not one of those people, they don't give a fuck about you. doesn't matter if you're black, white, purple, yellow, or green. I work in the financial industry. We have clients. Our number one goal is to make those clients as wealthy as conceivably possible. Why? Because that's the service that they're paying us for. Get in the game, and maybe you'll start to reap some of the benefits sit on the sidelines and bitch about how the game is rigged and you have no chance of ever winning the game or even losing the game. You are not even a part of the game. You are a soccer ball in a football stadium. Like, you have no business being there and probably correct. Then, last but not least, I just thought it was very funny. She was talking to, she was talking, well, why do women not have as much wealth as men? And, you know, it's definitely not because, you know, and she says something, she gives this example and here's the actual quote. You're not rich because you buy too many lattes and too much avocado toast or because you don't work hard enough. That's bullshit, end quote. Um, alternatively, maybe your spending habits and your work ethic are responsible for your personal financial situation. I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to go with, again, the Occam's razor here and suggest that if you don't have a lot of money, it's because you don't have a lot of skills, you don't have a lot of work ethic, or perhaps your spending habits are abysmal. There's really not a whole lot of other options other than some sort of boogeyman of the patriarchy and systems of oppression and blah, 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 blah. 
You know, for every moron that I see sitting around bitching and complaining about the systems of oppression are holding me down, I can find another moron who is virtually, well, I guess they're not a moron in the latter case, but I can find somebody who is virtually in the exact same position as that person who has, instead of sat around and bitched about the system holding them down, just gone out and worked within it and has succeeded. This woman hasn't even been old enough to really... You know, she's made a lot of money. Apparently, she wrote a book. She wrote a, my first 100000 So, fuck, she's, she's worth a lot more money than I am. I don't know how that came to be because she's a fucking idiot based on the 30 minutes that I listened to her and based on the fact that she thinks, you know, feminism is in any way relatable to finance. It really doesn't matter. It's sort of like racial finance. There's one color that matters in finance, and it's green. Doesn't matter if you're black, you're white, you're yellow, you're red. It doesn't matter if you're paying advisory fees or you're making in you know ten percent uh, uh, on investments a year for your clients or whatever it is. You could be you could be fucking the ghost of Osama bin Laden. There isn't a financial firm in the fucking world that wouldn't consider hiring you if you were good enough at your job. And so, um, spoiler alert: I probably won't be listening to any more of the financial feminist podcast, but. I stumble upon things like this all the time. When Hillary's podcast was suggested to me, I listened to it, and I gave you a review because I didn't want you to have to waste your time, but I figured there were probably a few gems in there that people you know, who are still sane and rational might get a kick out of. But um, we've got a couple more topics to go here. We're going to do UFOs, and we're going to do white guilt parties. Let me start with UFOs because um, it's going to be a somewhat easier breakdown, and then the last thing I'm going to be reading predominantly from an article again so let's just let's start here because I don't want to go back into read mode quite yet. But um, so UFOs, they're a thing now, right? Like the, the mainstream media is, is now basically admitted that this is a thing. You're seeing it on both sides of the aisle, too. It's not like Fox is covering it and CNN is and vice versa. Everybody's covering it. The government's talking about it. We've got testimony from pilots. We've got radar readings. We've got camera feeds. We've got enough evidence to suggest that there's something floating around out there. And the rest of us just don't have any fucking idea what it could possibly be. So rather than do the Wuhan lab leak nonsense and just completely ignore very probable possibilities, I'm going to lay out all of the possible possibilities to what these UFOs are. And I think I'm doing it in, um, I think I'm doing it in the most like Occam's razor type way. I'm going to put it in order of possible, you know, of of likelihood, I guess is probably the best way of putting it. So I'm going to start with, the fact that these UFOs are terrestrial, meaning that they are from Earth. That could mean a few different things, and some of these might sound repetitive, but there's very specific intents in mind with each of these. Terrestrial could mean it's ours, it's a foreign government's. It could also mean that there's another civilization that has been living on this planet that's managed to stay under the radar, which, frankly, if they have technology capable of breaking the sound barrier and all the things that we've seen some of these UAPs, these unidentified aerial phenomenon doing... Well, then, yeah, I mean, there's no reason to believe that they couldn't be living on this planet without us knowing. I mean, they could do crazy shit that we don't even understand that seems physically impossible to even some of our top scientists. So to suggest that they couldn't be like living in Wakanda or living on Antarctica or living out in the woods somewhere and, you know, bumblefuck, it's entirely possible because if they could do the things that they're doing with these craft, there's there's no limit to the technology that they might have that we are unaware of. So terrestrial in that it's uh it's a earth-based being known or unknown domestic or foreign but nevertheless earth that's likelihood number one likelihood number two is that this is an extraterrestrial species 
Um, that could, they could be coming from another dimension, from another galaxy, from the hollow earth. I don't know. There's any number of possibilities as far as, uh, well, I guess extra, that would be, it, we'll go back to hollow earth people would be on terrestrial. But nevertheless, it could be coming from any number of different places. That would be pretty scary. If it, if it wasn't scary enough to think that there might be extraordinarily advanced technology on this planet that we're unaware of, God knows how much more terrifying it would be to find out that there's extraordinarily advanced technology on another planet, and not only is that technology so crazy advanced, but those people are able to come here when we didn't even know they existed. That's a little terrifying. Let's hope that they uh, come in peace. So from there, we've also got interdimensional. I mentioned this a little bit with the last one, meaning that it could be humans from a different Earth. If If you're a believer in the multiverse, which I am, I think the multiverse exists, Um, I think there are infinite variations of the earth that we live on spanning from, you know, everything being completely upside down, everything being almost the exact same sans one minutia detail and everything in between. Uh, I think that's I think that's entirely possible. That said, if that exists, um, there would potentially one would think be a way to travel from dimension to dimension. And if let's say we are Earth one and there's many other Earths. Let's use like the DC Comics model and say there's 52 Earths. Um, okay, well then the people from Earth 2 could conceivably travel to Earth 1 and vice versa. Maybe somebody else figured that out before we did. Maybe we're Earth 3 and like Earth 2 is just a little bit farther along in their evolution and they've figured it out and they're coming to uh, other dimensions to see what they got going on. Maybe even to be kind enough to share some of this technology. That'd be pretty cool. I wouldn't mind going to another dimension. Perhaps one where the left doesn't completely fucking overrun everything. Um, so then number four. And four and five are kind of one and the same, but they're not. Pure propaganda. Now, what would this propaganda be? Well, number four is propaganda. We're trying to trick our enemies. And I guess that can also go with propaganda. Our enemies are trying to trick us. So... Let's use us and China for a big example here. If we wanted to scare China and maybe even put them on high alert for a threat that doesn't truly exist, maybe we make a bunch of fake videos of UFOs and we have a bunch of Navy pilots testify to the fact that these things are real. We make a couple videos, we fudge a couple radar readings, and we make it look like there's an extraterrestrial threat out there that would either put China on its heels as far as to now not only be worried about a potential American military strike, but an extraterrestrial military strike. Perhaps we have the ability to spoof this type of technology and make these things look like they're real and appear on foreign radar. Now we could get the Chinese going one way while we attack another, or vice versa. Perhaps the Chinese could be doing that to us, but it's very possible. Fourth, most likely, I think, on my list here, that this is some sort of propaganda effort for somebody to trick somebody into thinking that there's a threat out there that doesn't exist. And that could be, for the record, a third party. It could be we're trying to convince the Chinese that there's an alien race out there, or maybe a a third party that's just a different country that has advanced technology that they need to be worried about. Or perhaps there's something going on, you know, behind the scenes where we're signaling to the Chinese, like, that's really ours. Like, we keep telling, we're telling people it's UFOs, but it's us. We have this technology. And if you ever so much as even think about coming anywhere near the United States of America, we're going to send these ships over there and they will take you down within an hour. Which, based on their capability, is entirely likely. So, from there, we got propaganda trying to trick our enemies, or perhaps our enemies trying to trick us, and then we get to the propaganda of maybe this is our government trying to trick its people, us. 
perhaps the left, the media, the Democrats, the powers that be, the deep state, the Illuminati, whatever the case may be. Now now we're in a whole other tier of, of radical ridiculousness. Perhaps those people paid attention to Ronald Reagan's speech when he talked about, you know, if there was an extraterrestrial threat that would ever come to this planet, suddenly all of these warring nations would have to kind of get along, kind of throw their hats in together and say, all right, well, it looks like we're fighting this one together, like Independence Day, starring Will Smith. And uh, and, and uh, what's this nuts? The guy who gave the, the fucking speech. Bill Paxson, I think, I don't know, whatever his name is, he was, uh, that, that's still one of the greatest speeches in the history of film, and I don't, I don't care what anyone says about it, um, but, yeah, in a situation like Independence Day, where an alien species comes, suddenly, all of the world's governments would have to kind of throw in together, suddenly, the UN would become a whole lot more powerful and important, meaning that it would actually be important for the first time in a long time, um, and, and, boom, you want your globalism, and climate change isn't scaring people into giving up all their rights? How about an alien attack? You blow up a fucking building from some sort of fake-looking spaceship, all of a sudden everybody will be happy to hand over their rights in order for protection. Now, of course, if all of us are just armed, and we we might have a better chance than our government protecting us from a species that they'll probably just piss off and encourage to fucking nuke us anyway. But this is something called Operation Blue Beam. This is something that's been circulating around conspiracy theorist circles for a long time, is the idea that, you know, they tried... They tried global warming, they tried a pandemic, they tried, you know, gun violence, they tried all these various things to try to get everyday citizens to give up their rights, more specifically not to their federal governments, but to an overarching global government, and there are certain problems that would require a global effort in order to fix, like climate change, like a pandemic, like an alien invasion, and it could just be yet another mechanism for the powers to be to try to gather more power and for us to give up ours. And uh, listen, I mean, if we had like an Independence Day type scenario and they came down, they blew up the fucking White House tomorrow. All of a sudden, I think even I would be like, oh, shit, this might be real. And we might need to seriously consider giving up some of our rights to the government in order for them to protect us. I'm praying that doesn't happen. And I'm hoping in those circumstances, I might not necessarily feel that way. But it would be pretty hard to say that you random Joe Schmo with your Glock could conceivably, you know, withstand an alien invasion from, let's say, a force that was able to somehow blow up our White House or some crazy thing like that. So, is it propaganda for us tricking our enemies or for us tricking ourselves? I don't know. Here's my sixth option, and this one I like the best, even though it is the least likely. Perhaps we are witnessing time travel. I know, seems weird, seems kind of out of the box, but we are talking about UFOs, which, by the way, no one had acknowledged really existed until about a cup of coffee ago. So, is time travel all that crazier? Now, I say that, well, why would they be flying up there and all that sort of stuff? But what if it's not time travel in the conventional sense where we think about, like, back to the future time travel, where you go back in time and uh, you, you change a few things and blah, blah, blah. Maybe somebody figured out along the way that you can't do that, that it screws up everything. Maybe that's why we have things today like the Mandela Effect and that there were different realities that existed. Some people remember those realities, others do not. This is why you have things like the Berenstain Bears versus the Berenstain Bears. The fact that, you know, some people think Nelson Mandela died in the 80s and obviously he didn't die until recently, uh, last couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. Well, maybe that's the result of time travelers going back in time and making an attempt to make changes, and then they realize, all right, we can't do this because we keep flowing up, we keep screwing up the flow of time. 
But what if we could just simply travel back in time and almost like a roller coaster at Six Flags in the year 4000 or whatever it is, you can go back and see what life was like in 2021 during the pandemic. And you can go back and you fly in these overhead ships that clearly have vast and exorbitant and extreme technology we're not even close to tapping into yet. And you're able to go back in time, but you're, you're just sitting in these little Tic Tacs and you're just kind of viewing from above and they probably have the technology to like get a few cameras at ground level if they're not already synced to a few that they've planted here and all that sort of stuff. And it's basically just like a ride for people in the future to come back in the same way. Like if I could go to Six Flags tomorrow and I could travel back to the prehistoric era and be flying around in a Tic Tac next to a pterodactyl, you bet your ass I would be there lickety split. So I can imagine that that same excitement might occur in future very, very far future generations, and maybe people are curious to see what happened back in our time. Maybe our time is, you know, a pivotal time that really changed the shape of everything. Maybe there's heroes that exist in this time that they know about still in the future. Maybe there's villains that caused such a chaotic situation that things got really bad in the future, and they want to come back and see it. Maybe that person was Trump. Maybe that person's Biden. Maybe it's fucking Kamala Harris. Maybe it's Dr. Fauci. Who knows? But there seems to be a lot of question marks around all this. And rather than do what, uh, you know, our experts did with the Wuhan leak, I think that this is something that we should consider all the options. And uh, there they are. I gave them to you. And uh, I hope, you know, I'm very interested to actually hear what, what you guys think. So is it a terrestrial thread, an extraterrestrial thread, an interdimensional thread? Is it all propaganda? If so, who's propagandizing? Who's being propagandized? And uh, and is time travel completely out of the question? Could it be Bigfoot? Number seven. We'll throw it on there. It's Bigfoot. All this time we've been looking for him in the woods. He's really flying around in Tic Tacs, going the speed of sound and shit. Let me know. Um, either leave a review on the show, find me on Twitter, Parlor, Instagram, Right Opinion Pod is the handle, um, and, you know, fire away. I'm, I'm actually intrigued to hear what people have to think about this particular instance. And that brings me to, uh, I like to always send you guys home with something perfectly ridiculous, and oh boy, that I find something perfectly ridiculous for you. So, I give to you this week an article from thecut.com, and a publication I'm frankly not all that familiar with, but it's an article uh, entitled, Guilty Parties, Two Entrepreneurs Have Built a Business Dredging Up White Women's Shame by Molly Fisher. This is just rich. So... I'd give you a description, but I think she does a pretty good job here in the article, so I'm just going to read right from it. And I quote, Were white fragility to be adapted as reality TV, the result might look something like this. A collection of affluent white women, equipped with varying degrees of vanity and self-delusion, gather at a well-appointed dinner table. There, they face down a pair of unsparing judges prepared to see through them. Who's racist? Time to find out. White wine flows. White women admit shameful secrets. They get squirmy. They get angry. They turn on each other. If one of them starts to cry, she has to leave. She will find tissues in the designated crying room. All right. Uh, moving on from there. The Bravo version of Robin D'Angelo, in other words, might look a bit like race to dinner. That's race, the number two, dinner, all one word. Begun in 2019 by Regina Jackson and Sarah Rao, Race to Dinner gathers groups of eight white women at a home of a white host, where Jackson and Rao facilitate a discussion about race over dinner. Early in the evening, for example, 
they will often ask the white women whether they would prefer to trade places with Jackson, who is black, or Rao, who is an Indian American. The women almost uniformly choose Rao. So they know, Rao says. They know the entire ecosystem. The idea is to bring such submerged racial judgments to light. However uncomfortable, this might make the white women. Jackson and Rao ask guests to describe racist things they've done recently and press them on any evasions. Often the examples that emerge involve silence, failing to speak up or intervene. Sometimes they consist of thoughts or feelings, assuming that the black teens pulled over in a white neighborhood must have done something wrong. Sometimes the guests struggle to think to, of what to say. Not knowing is a classic white behavior, Rao told me. You don't know, because it would ruin your entire image of being, of, the, of being the perfect, nice white lady. I'm sure you're intimately familiar with this, being a white woman. She says this to the actual reporter. She's sitting here trying to judge this reporter who's writing this article about her. It's just priceless. This is just insane. Then, next paragraph says, race to dinner. Participants sign up for something that promises to be painful, unsightly, and yet transformative, like a chemical peel for the soul. Interested in hosting a dinner? Asks the Race to Dinner website in red text superimposed on the shattered china plate. Click here to smash your white fragility. Unbelievable. I'm sorry. I can't even... <laughs> All right. Guess used to be asked to read white fragility, but no more. For one thing, Rao said, we definitely don't want to put another dollar in Robin D'Angelo's pocket. Quick pause. So they think this one, like they obviously have some beef with this woman because they don't want to put any more money in her pocket. Yet they've in, they've adopted her entire ideology and monetized it to fleece shamed white women out of their money because they've convinced them that they're these racist monsters even though they're clearly not if they're even willing to participate in something like this. But nevertheless, they must be simply because of the color of their skin. This is what is otherwise known in other parts of the world as racism. She goes on to say that there's another reason why they don't ask people to read that book, and that's because virtually every one of their prospective customers has already read it. I'm now going to get back into the article verbatim. And I quote, when they first started out, they charged $2,500 per dinner to be covered by the host or divided amongst the guests. That's peanuts, Jackson told me. When we spoke over Zoom, people pay more for that to go to a yoga conference. To a yoga class, Rao said. In New York City, that's like a yoga class with, like, a green juice on the side. Okay. Again, quick pause here. If you're paying $2,500 to go to a yoga class, you're a fucking idiot. I don't care where you live and how much money you have. You can get these things for free on YouTube. There's, like, no reason to pay that exorbitant amount of money for you to go to a yoga class, even if the green juice on the side is delectable. It, 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 there is no juice, and I'm a juice lover. I drink a lot of juice, an obscene amount of apple juice for a 34-year-old man. But no, no green juice is worth $2,500, and certainly no yoga class, even if you live in the shithole known as New York City. I get back into the article now, and I quote, Their business model unsurprisingly attracted attention. In February 2020, a Guardian article on the dinners made the rounds online, inspiring umbrage and hilarity across the political spectrum. White women paying uh, $2,500 for a dinner to learn how they're racist, read the headline on a New York Post rehash of the report, cutting right to the chase. Jackson and Rao, meanwhile, 
received an influx of new inquiries about their service and signed a deal to write a book called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to, be, and how to Do Better. I'm not going to be picking that one up anytime soon. Sorry, folks. I endure a lot of liberal nonsense for your entertainment, but I am not fucking reading that book. I might even avoid bookstores for fear of running into that book because I'm afraid of what I might do. And it turns out as a result of this, these articles that were written about this nonsense, instead of completely shutting down their business model, which you would imagine it would because it's fucking racist and that no moron, even the moron, the moroniest of morons, you would find it hard to believe would spend this kind of money to be fucking belittled and called a racist. But no, they were able to then double their price for the dinners because of the demand, proving once and for all how insanely stupid this country has become. Back into the article. Whilst the pandemic scuttled planning for events in San Francisco, New York, and D.C., a new wave of interest soon arrived amid the protests that followed George Floyd's murder. Lisa Bond served as Race to Dinner's, quote, resident white woman. Jackson and Rao hired her to help organize events after she hosted her own dinner two years ago. So great, now they've, they've convinced this woman that she's such a racist that she now needs to dedicate her time and money to an organization like this, which is, of course, racist, but nevertheless is supposed to be combating racism and they've convinced her of such and now she's on the payroll and apparently comfortable with being called the resident white woman imagine if the roles were reversed anyway so bond had initially balked at the cost of the dinner but after seeing a post from rao and jackson about how many white women balked at the cost she resolved not to be like the others so Okay, so these women were charging an exorbitant amount of money for you to host a dinner and then you be told that you're a racist. And then when people like Lisa Bond balked at the cost of the dinner, they then used that to guilt people like Lisa Bond into just going along with it anyway. Because obviously if you balked at the price of this dinner, which is ridiculous, extravagant, most people couldn't conceivably pay it, nor would they. Under any normal circumstances, now you're now you're a racist, obviously, because anyone who wasn't a racist would definitely pay this amount of money to be told what a racist they are. Wow. All right. So last summer, Bond said she fielded some 300 emails in a three month period and had nearly 100 follow up phone calls of 30 or 45 minutes each of those three women proceeded to book an event. Bond said, and I quote, we get excuse after excuse after excuse. It's typical white woman fashion, end quote. This article goes on for a while, but I just wanted to, I wanted to really focus on Lisa Bond and the fucking Stockholm Syndrome this woman is suffering from. She has been so entrapped in the notion that she is just an evil white woman, like all white women are, that she's definitely racist simply because of the color of her skin. Otherwise, I would think she would know that she wasn't a racist, but if if she's being told that she's a racist because of an immutable characteristic then yeah, I can imagine that she probably would go on and take some action from there in order to try to reverse her racism. The problem is is that the premise is ridiculous and she just bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Now, I've dated a fair amount of white women in my day, and let me tell you, they're not all fucking rainbows and sunshine. But I can tell you, most of them aren't racist, um, just based on the fact that I've, you know, communicated with them, we've talked about things, and I could tell based on the reactions to people, ideas, music genres, blah, blah, blah. You could just tell somebody isn't a racist. Generally, it's pretty obvious. But that's the thing, is that racism generally is pretty obvious. You could you can usually sniff it out pretty quickly in a conversation with even somebody you don't know all that well. 
And for the left, the problem lies in the fact that racism is so increasingly diminishing as every day passes in this country that they need to keep striking up new forms or new definitions of racism, not to correct racism, but to profit off of it. See Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Sean King, Jesse Smollett, uh, all these various people that have literally created racism in order for them to profit off of it. Fortunately for Mr. Smollett, it didn't work out all that well for him, but that was a pretty glaring example. And actually, I'm going to wrap up with one last thought here because I, uh, Jesse Smollett actually reminded me that I have to reconsider something I've been thinking long and hard about. We just talk a lot, spent a lot of time talking about racism. And uh, look, guys, I mean, here it is. I'm just going to say it. Um, maybe the MAGA movement is racist. And I, I, I might have to just take a step back and kind of reconsider some of the, the stances I've made about the MAGA movement in the past because I, I now feel like I have definitive proof that they are racist, and as a result, I'm, you know, somebody who's not immune to the facts. So when I find this evidence, it's really hard for me to overlook, and for that matter, it's really hard for me to swallow some of the things I've said in the past in defense of this movement. So what, you might be asking, is this epic evidence that proves once and for all that the MAGA movement is a racist movement? Well, that brings me to the city of Chicago, where the mayor... Lori Lightfoot, is currently in the midst of a campaign where she is no longer going to be accepting interviews from white journalists, meaning she is discriminating against people based on the color of their skin. Now, you might wonder, Harrison, I thought you said the MAGA movement was racist. What does that have to do with Lori Lightfoot? Well, I'm sorry, guys. I have to remind you that Lori Lightfoot is the mayor of Chicago. And for those of you who might have forgotten, Chicago is MAGA country, baby. So, one can only stand to reason that if you are a population of people living in a place called MAGA country, and you elect a racist mayor, maybe MAGA country's racist. And if MAGA country's racist, then, then I guess MAGA's racist. I'm, I mean, I'm just saying that the mayor of MAGA country is a fucking bigot. So it's it's a, at a certain point we need to, I think, as honest, you know, arbiters of what's going on in this country, I think we need to con reconsider, you know, the things that we've thought about the MAGA movement. I mean, the mayor of MAGA country is openly discriminating against people based on their skin color. So, you know, I mean, the, the media had been telling us all this time, uh, you know, MAGA's racist. And I was like, nah, you're lying. And, well, you know, maybe they got one right. While they were ignoring the lab leak theory, they were they were right. MAGA's racist. See Lori Lightfoot. And that's it. That's all I got for this week. I uh, I wish you all well. We had, we had an interesting series of topics this week. I hope to have an equally interesting, if not more so, uh, series of topics the next time I talk to you, which will hopefully be sooner than it was this time around. But as always, I'm Harrison Bergeron, and I've been your host, and it is important for me to remind you that opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one, but this asshole has the right opinion, and you can only get it right here on rightopinionpod.substack.com or just search the right opinion on any podcatcher uh, that you may be using. The likelihood it is there. It will be the thumbnail that is black and white and red all over like the New York Times used to be. And one more time, follow me on the socials, Twitter, Parler, Instagram, and Substack. Right Opinion Pod is the handle, and uh, I'll be 
posting articles and tweeting tweets and parlaying parlays, although I don't do that as frequently as I should. And uh, Instagram gets gets a hit or two every so often. So follow me there if you're interested in the right opinion. That's where you can find it in all of its various forms, including this this new long-form medium called a podcast. I know, it's kind of crazy, right? Shout-outs to the financial feminists out there. I'm Harrison Bergeron. I'll talk to you guys next time. Peace. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Boom.